Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General Spider Marks, and Peter Chur. Today, we are going to talk about the trade war with China, but more specifically, we are going to discuss the differences in the way that China and the United States asserts influence in the developing world. We will further focus on how this is done through use of the military. And later, we discuss energy independence. It plays a significant role in this dynamic, and as Peter will expound upon later, has an impact on how the market reacts. General Marks, We've paid a lot of attention to all the developments with China. We have Peter's commentary on the trade war, and then we've obviously touched on our diplomatic relations with China as it affects our negotiations with North Korea. Something that we haven't discussed very much is how China's military has become expeditionary and how they pursue development in the world. And I'd love your perspectives from a geopolitical view, how the U.S. and China do development and investment differently. Well, thanks, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question because the United States and China fundamentally view development and engagement internationally through a far different filter. I mean, it's quite phenomenal how starkly different they really are, yet on the ground, it's surprisingly unremarkable. I mean, there have been many places where the United States and the Chinese will bump into each other, even through the application of military force, not in a hostile way, but in a a manner to enhance engagement. And and it's, again, it, it would surprise you rather normal, it appears. Almost two decades ago, I was part of a unit that was tasked to send some folks into West Africa. And the very first thing that this group of professional officers and some non-commissioned officers bumped into were a handful of military, you know, Chinese military folks who were engaged in their own policy and engagement missions ongoing. And the only thing that I think was different is that, you know, they re- reported back and they said, you know, these guys are quite normal. They, they want to act with us. They want to cooperate with us. They want to engage with us. They seem quite peaceful. They seem quite open and transparent. They just smoke a heck of a lot of cigarettes. We don't. And that's about the significant difference. But what's interesting at the very strategic and policy level is the Chinese want to fundamentally alter the landscape where they are. They are looking to put nations and organizations and businesses into forms of servitude. They want to have a presence that is long-lasting and that is dependent upon Beijing. By contrast, the United States is not interested in that. The United States certainly, look, let's not be naive, wants to achieve influence. But we want to change conditions on the ground that allow the United States to have an opportunity to have a voice. Their voice can be heard in that location. The residents of that location, the citizens of that nation, the folks that live on those pieces of ground where the United States engage, have a voice and can choose the type of direction in which they want to go. And if the United States has helped facilitate that, guess what? We are hopeful and we're optimistic that they're going to choose to be a friend in our court. And that's kind of the, the difference, the fundamental difference between what Washington, D.C. does in terms of engagement internationally through the use of force, through the use of mili- the military application of force, and what China does. 
sort of follow up on that. Africa specifically, we've seen China put their first long-term base in Djibouti. Now there's some discussion out of the Trump administration, especially after the four special operation forces soldiers were killed in Niger about potentially leaving the continent or maybe minimizing our footprint. Do you have any sort of perspective on the threats of violent extremism on the continent if we take a step back and China steps in? Oh, absolutely. As we have learned, ungoverned space is a breeding ground for extremism. Violence can emerge and present itself in a whole bunch of different forms, and then that can be exported. And so when you can grow these capabilities, these opportunities are without limit, and then you can export them. And and frankly, as we've learned, when you look at the map of the world at night, you've got elements of dark and elements of light. Most of Africa is in the darkness, and good and peaceful and values-based ideology migrates from the light to the dark, yet those that are in the dark will migrate to the light in order to either be a part of that burgeoning opportunity, the democratically-based, economically-based, market-driven opportunities, but if they've been influenced inexorably, they'll bring all their violence and their extremism with them. And those are the challenges we have. So when the United States backs away from areas, if we don't make the effort to try to bring light to the darkness, then that's a void that countries like China and ideologies that really start with control will certainly take advantage of that opportunity. So where the United States takes a step back, other opportunities are available for other nations and other ideologies to step in. If it's not in our national interest, how do we make it a part of our national interest? Do we define it, our national interest, differently, or do we view it truly from our experience over the course of the last two decades, which has been, you know, in the summer of 1998 when the bombs went off both in Dar es Salaam and in Nairobi, and we found ourselves confronted with a form of extremism and violence that was truly without boundary and truly indiscriminate, yet from the extremist perspective is exactly what they hoped to achieve. It was target-rich. It was not protected. It represented all the goodness that the Western values bring forward, and it was their desire to try to take that down and make a very strong statement. So it's very obvious to us what we need to do. We just need to be able to define whether it's in our best interest. The Chinese will take advantage of it. Other competitors will take advantage of it especially in places like Africa, where if you turn around, you can throw a cat and you're going to hit someone who is being influenced or paid for by the Chinese. Peter, obviously security issues and economic issues are linked. Is there a benefit to China by causing uh, any sort of debt crisis in, in Africa or Pakistan or some of the places where we've seen massive infrastructure projects? You know, I think first and foremost, China is very interested in securing natural resources across the globe. China has a billion people to feed, clothe, heat, drive cars. So China has made a very aggressive play globally to have strong influence over natural resources um, that continues to grow. And I agree completely with Spider that they have a very different agenda in how they plan to secure that. I think their willingness to step in if there are disruptions in their supply chain to enforce that supply chain is real. So I think we have to realize that we're facing a country that behaves very different and puts their national interests well ahead of everything else. That's something as we look at trade and trade wars, we just have to understand that we are dealing with an entity that has a long-term 
can and is willing to, you know, do what it takes to do that, which includes economically purchasing access and resources on a scale probably we have never seen before. You know, Peter, let me jump in on that if I may. What's really interesting to me is that you really you see with the, the growth of Chinese influence over the course of the last few decades, it's primarily been through the application of economics and commerce and the, and, and the marketplace. The United States has always, I think, employed its elements of power as much as we can in a very coordinated way. So the application of diplomacy and commerce and the military, we hope, will act in some synchronized, coherent fashion. What concerns me is that China, over the course of the last couple of decades, has really become, as Rachel has pointed out, an expeditionary military. They've never been that way before, yet their navy is far more powerful. It is a blue-water navy. Their air force is increasing its strength. Cyber capability, they're able to reach anywhere, any corner of the globe, at an instant with a level of precision and professionalism within the cyber domain that's almost unmatched. And that's really what I would call the terrain and the domain of war of real competition now. But I think what we see is that, you know, spheres of influence are being challenged and are changing. Where the United States has with certainty and with amazing selflessness for decades has always been a part of the global landscape to ensure the peaceful transit of commerce and an engagement in a hopefully peaceful way. We've been able to establish spheres of influence. And it's not unusual, and we expect the United States to has a naval presence in the Indian Ocean, in the South China Sea, in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, in the Red Sea. It's important for us to routinely do that, and we will always do that. Yet it's going to be increasingly more common where we're going to see the Chinese present themselves in a very competitive way in those areas where the United States has routinely been a presence. These spheres of influence now are being altered, and it's up to the United States to determine whether we want to have a competitive engagement with the Chinese in these areas, or if we can agree, yep, things are changing, yep, there should be some adjustments to our expectations, and how we engage, let's figure that out now before we cross the path that puts us into a potentially confrontational or competitive space. In other words, let's, let's think about that now before we have a crisis. Let's have the intellectual precede the physical now let's work through what we think the options look like, lay them out there, and present those to what we think those current competitors are, where we think we might be able to cooperate. And I specifically think how the United States engages with China is a great opportunity here for us as these spheres of influence are being altered and challenged to have a conversation now so that we can be a part of what the shape looks like. You know, I think that would be great. I think if anything, we're actually advocating that. You know, it doesn't still get enough attention, but more people are starting to talk about it. China is now trading gold and oil directly in the yuan or renminbi, basically being able to avoid petrodollars, right? They are changing that landscape. It's something we have not really pushed or fought for. I think, you know, maybe it supports a kind of a weak dollar and export-driven policy by this administration. But I think it's not just physically that they are taking a bigger, bigger role it is things like economics, where as you start trading onshore in your own currency and you can bypass the dollar, I think that will give them much bigger influence there, too. So, you know, it's happening in all spheres, I think. And you are probably right that we have to start figuring out a plan of action 
before it kind of snowballs to a point of no return. Peter, we've seen some developments with Europe as far as trades and tariffs go. What are you seeing this week? How is the market reacting to that news? Can you forecast anything, how it may respond with the continuing developments of China? Yeah, I think yesterday we had the press conference and it was Juncker from Europe and, you know, Trump, and we came out saying some positive things about the potential for trade. I think as you dig through it, it talks about LNG, for example. That's great, but it's our production capacity that still has to be built up. They talked a little bit about agriculture. That sounds very good, but if you go back and read it, it would probably be against all the EU treaties and internal documentation, so that's probably unlikely to happen. So I think this was very much a photo op, kind of a good feel-good situation. It creates the opportunity for real dialogue, but I think we're not seeing you know, a whole lot of belief that this is going to come true. It was interesting that it expressly avoided talking about autos. So the markets are kind of doing the right thing. They, you know, the Dow Jones has rallied a little bit on the back of that where some of the more industrial companies are based. And away from that, the markets are a little bit softer today on the back of Facebook. So it's not having a meaningful impact. What's a growing concern is that there are signs that the Chinese trade war is real, that China is actually not reaching out to us. One of the things we're seeing Europe tell to us, NAFTA has come. China, by all accounts, is not reaching out to us. So I think they're preparing for a long, drawn-out trade war. Their banks uh, were told yesterday by the central bank to make sure they had easier lending. So China is actually taking steps that prepares for a trade war. I don't think we're ready for that here yet. Um, one thing that's going to be really interesting to see is Friday we get GDP release. It should be very strong. So there's a lot going on here. I think the market is optimistic, cautiously optimistic trade will work out. I'm a little bit more concerned that we are due for a little bit of a setback again. You know, Peter, your insights are incredibly valuable. You know, one of the things that comes to mind on the heels of what you just said is when you look at what the United States has been able to achieve in oil and gas production and exploration over the course of the last decade or so, you know, we've gone from being, I think, a net importer to a net exporter. But one of the challenges to that is our midstream or, or distribution capacity, and I would think that that's a real opportunity for investment dollars and for engagement domestically, irrespective of what is happening in potential trade skirmishes or trade wars as they emerge or evolve any further. But it's really something where we can we could get involved very openly, very aggressively with some legitimate upside for the United States and to help moderate the geopolitical pressure associated with the petrodollars and oil and gas challenges that routinely drive our economy, discussion, and market volatility. What are your thoughts in terms of oil and gas infrastructure, specifically as it affects distribution? Spider, I think that's a great question. Domestic energy growth, I think, is a really important policy tool. It should receive all the support it needs. We need to make sure that we have the internal distribution, that we can get LNG out. And I think the past couple of weeks have been a great example. Tensions with Iran are probably as high as they've been, and yet oil markets are not disrupting our economy because we're just not as dependent as we once were. So I think this is really important for us to continue to develop. It's good for America. It's good from a safety standpoint, and it lets some of those parts of the world where oil is produced but are very, you know, disruptive, not to impact us like they once would. So I completely think we should focus on that, and it should be an area of growth for this country. And LNG is going to be one of the big exports in the coming decades, and we're going to be a leader in that. 
You know, and I think, Peter, it decreases volatility here at home, but simultaneously increases United States' ability to influence globally. And that's incredibly important as we continue to move through this period of transition, which we always see with new administrations and in this great thing that we have called the democratic electoral process. I mean, it's just one of the natural byproducts of having a government that's been formed with an invitation among its various parts to struggle. And as we struggle, here's an opportunity to posture ourselves so much more positively economically, affects us positively at home, and affects our ability to engage internationally and influence internationally. Thank you, Spider, and thank you, Peter and Rachel, as well. This has been another podcast by Academy Securities, a service-disabled veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. We are extremely happy to provide this resource to our friends and clients. If you would like to engage our geopolitical and macro strategy experts, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. This is your host, Andy Robinson, and we look forward to sharing more with you next week.